Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. David Wooden. He is an anniversary professor of history at the University of York. He works on the intellectual and cultural history of the English-speaking countries, Italy and France, from the 17th to the 19th centuries. His most recent book is Power, Pleasure and Profit, and is also the author of the book which we'll be focusing on the most today, titled The Invention of Science, A New History of the Scientific Revolution. So, Dr. Wooden, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. A pleasure. Okay, great. So, we're going to talk about the history of the scientific revolution today uh, and how people basically created the scientific method. So, before we get into the scientific method specifically, I would like to ask you if there are any relevant historical precursors to what we call science today. Because sometimes people refer to the pre-Socratics and naturalism and Aristotle and the Epicureans and even people from the Arabic world. So uh, is, is what they were doing back then akin to science as we have it today or not? It's certainly akin to science as we have it today, and it's certainly a relevant precursor because the science we have, have today developed out of the study of those texts, all the texts you, you've talked about. So in that sense, uh, there's a, a continuous tradition. But what's very striking for all the people you've talked about is that they failed to establish a tradition of progress. At various moments in time, there are very important discoveries about the natural world, but none of them lead to a, a path down which a whole series of generations can advance. And that's something that really only happens in the beginning of the 17th century. And it represents a quite new type of event. And it happens because people become clear for the first time about what the methodology of science needs to be if it's to function successfully. So I would say there are, there are people beforehand whom you can say do very interesting and important things, but it would be a mistake to really categorize them as scientists. The one area where I think there's an, an exception to be made, perhaps, is with regard to Ptolemaic astronomy. And Ptolemaic astronomy does provide very exact descriptions of the planets in the sky. And one of the evidences that Ptolemaic astronomy functioned like a science, perhaps arguably is a science, is that as soon as Galileo came along and produced evidence which we would regard as refuting Ptolemaic astronomy, for example, the discovery of the phases of Venus, that all the Ptolemaic astronomers agree they were wrong. They understand at once that here is something that's contrary to all their predictions, and that means that their predictions are mistaken. And in that sense, Ptolemaic astronomy w was falsifiable. And uh, as it was falsifiable, I think we have to say it was scientific. What had held it back for centuries was the quality of the instruments that Ptolemaic astronomers were using, much more than the conceptual tools that they were using. Mm -hmm. So, what really happened in the 17th century? Was it the culmination of a series of technological developments that allowed for people 
to starting uh, transmitting information to one another that then uh, allowed for peer review, for example? Was it mainly a sort of a cultural revolution, perhaps mostly a conceptual revolution, because people really started thinking about how to approach the world uh, in a new light, they started using even new terms like discovery, experiment, and things like that. So, well, it's a series of things coming together. I think partly it's new technology. It's the printing press, which transforms communication. Copernicus would have been an insignificant local phenomenon if the printing press had made it possible to transmit his information not only across space and his 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 theories, not only across space, but across time. It's a long gap between uh, Copernicus and Galileo, but Galileo has, owns a copy of Copernicus and he can work with that copy of Copernicus. In a way, in a manuscript culture, it's almost implausible that a, uh, a Czech scientist would have provided information for Galileo to work on with uh, in, in Italy. So it's part of the printing press. It's partly the telescope, which is the first of a whole series of glass-based technologies leading to things like barometer and so on. Um, it's partly um, a, a whole new, crucially, I think, let's go back, uh, it, uh, before the telescope, more, almost contemporary with the printing press, a little after the printing press, is the discovery of America. And what the discovery of America does is demonstrate to every educated person that the whole of the ancient world was ignorant about a crucial fact about the nature of the earth and had a series of theories about the nature of the earth which were false. And that just destroys a confidence that knowledge is well established and it opens the way to a sense that there can be a whole series of new discoveries and it opens the way to the introduction of the word discovery in all the European languages. So discovery is the first big thing. Once you've got discovery, You've got to know and understanding that new information will transform knowledge. And, and the, the paradigm case of that is the discovery of America. And once that paradigm case is in place, everybody has a sense that there is new knowledge out there. And so Galileo is, is simply a, a, another, another Columbus, another Magellan, uh, and is treated by contemporaries in those terms as a discoverer of new worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just wondering if these events that occurred historically really led people to develop new ways of thinking of the, or if they were already able to think in those terms, perhaps not using the, those exact, exact same words like experiment, discovery, hypothesis, theory and things like that, but uh, if they were really already able to do that, or if it was really what we should call a revolution in a cultural sense. I'm, I'm pulling out my sleeves because I've already got out to work out. Um, there's, a, there's a chicken and egg problem here. Uh, you need, uh, you only develop new language if you've already got the capacity or the need that language, having the language makes it much easier for everyone else to acquire that capacity. So there's a, the language itself never marks the beginning of something, it always marks, as it were, the establishment of something, the stabilization of, of something. The new language of science 
comes from two main sources. It comes from mathematics, words like theory and hypothesis from mathematics. And it comes from the law, which was used to dealing with what we now call facts. Uh, and fact itself is a word that comes from the law. So the new language of science is an agglomeration of terminology that's already present, which whose meaning shifts when it's uh, introduced into the scientific context. So fact comes from a Latin word, which means to do, and lawyers have dealt with questions of what people have done, whether they've committed crimes. That's taken over into natural science to discuss what, what happens in the world, which is a quite different use of the word. So in that sort of way, language was being put to new uses in new contexts, but it was being borrowed from places where it was already familiar. It was already familiar in the law courts. It was already familiar among the mathematicians. This new language is the result of bringing those two very different cultures together in a common activity, which involves both constructing theories, which the mathematicians had always done, and relying heavily on empirical, which the lawyers had always done. I also asked you that because I was thinking about the work of Thomas Kuhn and he basically refers to science as being a series of revolutionary steps where it seems that some sort of knowledge accumulates and then people really arrive at new theories, for example, and it really changes the way they look at the world. And so it basically gives a sort of a cultural basis for science, for progression or progress in science. So, I mean, uh, does Thomas Kuhn really have a point there? Or is it simply the case that uh, science over time accumulates knowledge and people build up on the previous knowledge and they go on from there? Right. Um, I'm a great admirer of Kuhn. He had a central problem in his theory, um, and he knew it, and he struggled with it for decades after publishing The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. According to his theory, between two paradigm systems, uh, there is no standard, there is no common possibility of measurement. So what counts as evidence for someone working in on Kuhn's theory, someone working in the Ptolemaic system won't count as evidence for someone working in the Copernican system. Two systems are incommensurable. The movement from one to the other involves a radical shift in culture, which is in itself an irrational transition. This is not true uh, in certain respects. It's not true in the sense that Ptolemaic astronomers were capable of understanding the importance of the discovery of the phases of Venus. <clears throat> and Kuhn, if you look at Kuhn's treatment of the question of the discovery of the phases of Venus in his book on the Copernican Revolution, you can see that it doesn't work within his theory at all. So in that sense, he overemphasized incommensurability. If there were incommensurability, progress would be something that was entirely fictitious because you couldn't see that progress had taken place. It seems to me clear that progress is not fictitious. Progress is real. And Kuhn later in his life clearly thought that, but he had great difficulty in working out how he could build into his theory an account of progress. So I think Kuhn is right. There are paradigms, there are revolutionary transitions. There's no steady accumulation. There's no constant a set of values or, or theories, um, but 
those transitions are not as irrational as Kuhn thought they must be. They're not purely cultural, for want of a better word. They're the result of encounters with nature. Um, and in that sense, I think one has to have an account of science as achieving something to a much greater degree than Kuhn was able to produce. But I think uh, John Gray, the English philosopher, said something very clever about my book, which I hadn't quite realized. And as soon as I read him saying it, I realized he was right, which is the foundation of my book is the claim that science itself is a paradigm, that there's a set of enterprises and a set of assumptions and a set of values and a language which makes science possible. And that's, as you say, a cultural phenomenon. And once that cultural phenomenon is in place, science becomes self-replicating and successfully self-replicating over time. Even though within science, all sorts of paradigms shift and all sorts of claims shift, the overall structure remains very stable from the 17th century to the 21st century. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know that many scientists don't really like to use these terms or they don't like the implications of it. In this case, it's just a single term here. Uh, but would you say that then science is a socio-cultural construct? The scientific enterprise is unquestionably a socio-cultural construct. The knowledge within science isn't merely or solely a socio-cultural construct, but the enterprise is a socio-cultural construct, and the conceptual tools that are used in the enterprise are socio-cultural constructs. I mean, it seems to be useful here to think about an enterprise like cooking. Cooking is associated, different cultures have different styles of cooking, different uh, ideas about what constitutes a good meal, and so on. Cooking is a socio-cultural activity and, uh, and you learn it within a culture but at the same time it's profoundly constrained by what happens and chop it up and beat it about if you're trying to make a mayonnaise or whatever and and you can't just imagine your own system of cooking you have to work with the constraints that nature provides science in the same way as, just like cooking is a set of technology it's a technology a set of enterprises which has to work out in practice. And in that sense, it's not purely a cultural construct, it's an engagement with nature. And it's a technology for trying, in this case, not so much to transform nature as to predict nature and in the process to understand what's happening in nature. So I think the notion that science is a cultural construct is absolutely fine as long as we understand that that doesn't mean that there are no constraints upon what science can do or think. The constraints within a scientific system, unlike a religious system, for example, or a magical system, the constraints are provided by nature. There's a difference between fantasizing a beautiful meal and actually cooking a beautiful meal. You can, you know, and when you fantasize things, they, they, they turn out right each time. But when you, when you actually cook, things get burnt and things don't work. And science is like that. It's full of failures as well as successes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so would you say then that perhaps, for example, uh, atoms are not social cultural constructs by themselves, but perhaps the process of us discovering atoms and where what they are about and how they work, that depends on a certain cultural framework and also uh, it has also a social flavor in the sense that it is a collective enterprise. Yes, yes. I, I think that's right. If you think of an omelette, an omelette 
is not a social social cultural construct. It's something on your plate. But the enterprise of producing an omelet and the notion that that's an attractive thing to eat is a social cultural construct. Was cultural creatures, uh, perhaps uniquely, uh, uniquely to our knowledge. You know, we don't know much about the culture of whales and things, but as far as we know, we are uniquely social cultural creatures. And so science is one of our social cultural activities, but it isn't um, unlike, I mean, you can think of all sorts of other examples, but unlike music, where the range of things that you might try to do with music may be limited by the instruments you've got, but in modern technology, you could make any sort of sound you want. And in that sense, music becomes entirely a social cultural enterprise uh, harmony may be in some sense real or not real, but it's us who decide that it counts as harmony. Uh, science isn't like that. Science is, a, is a, a process in which you can recognize failure. And in that sense, uh, and, and the standard for failure is intergenerational and not just. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, I would like to ask you now, how do you look or how do you think about the relationship between philosophy and science? Because if we really need a sort of a conceptual framework to do science and it is important for us to have established how we approach the world epistemologically speaking, what is the relationship between philosophy and science, and not only at, at an historical level, because there are people that say that philosophy came before science and natural philosophy specifically influenced the development of science, but perhaps nowadays uh, science and philosophy work in two different domains. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that two different domains is correct. Up until the 18th century, when you talk about exactly where the line is drawn, and it depends upon the subject, and it depends upon the country, and it depends upon the institution, but broadly speaking, up until the 18th century, natural philosophers claimed that philosophy would give you an understanding of the real nature of the world. That's under attack by the mathematicians and the new scientists from the 17th century, by the end of the 18th century, they've won the battle. And science is no longer the source of information about how the world really is, uh, what we now call scientists are. And these are people descended from mathematical uh, forms of inquiry. And in that sense, natural philosophy gives up its claim to provide understanding of the world and replaces it by a claim that it understands thinking processes or it understands concepts or it understands language or whatever. Um, and we could we could worry about you know exactly what Hegel thinks he's doing or, or whatever that would take us into a different range of discussion. I think there's a very clear process whereby uh, the realm of philosophy becomes restricted, and philosophers are replaced by scientists. Um, and and you, what's really fundamental is that no natural philosopher ever spoke in support of Galileo or wrote in support of Galileo. This achievement of people like Galileo is entirely done uh, at, by, by uh, victory over natural philosophy, not by cooperation with natural philosophy. Um, and the new science replaces the old philosophy. Um, and what we therefore have now, when we have uh, our understanding of philosophy now, is radically more constrained 
uh, than the understanding that they had up until the late 17th or 18th century. Uh, and so we live... We now have a world in which we talk about arts and sciences, but it's important to understand that in the 17th century and before that, every art was accompanied by a science. The art of astronomy was accompanied by the, the science of astrology. Astrology was the practical application of astronomy. Uh, the art of uh, moral philosophy was accompanied by uh, the science of uh, casuistry. Casuistry was the practical application of moral philosophy. Arts and sciences were two sides of one coin. The result of the scientific revolution is that arts and sciences become separated uh, and arts become entirely concerned with what we might call culture and science becomes entirely concerned with what we might call nature. And that separation is uh, a scientific revolution separation. Mm -hmm. So is there any one point in history where we could really start talking about uh, scientists in the sense that uh, from a certain point on there were some people whose intellectual activity really we could call uh, the intellectual activity of a scientist or even that they were professionally scientists? Uh, yes, I think it's, I think from the triumph of Newtonianism, which takes a little you know, it takes 50, 60 years or so, is the triumph of the notion of a scientific enterprise. And once Newtonianism has pressed, pushed aside Cartesianism and, and the other alternative ways of thinking about the, the structure of the universe, uh, people engaged in what they still call, well, you see, what does Newton say he's doing? He's saying he's doing uh, a mathematical philosophy, uh, a new type of natural philosophy. Um, and in that sense, the new type of natural philosophy has replaced and it seems to be perfectly straightforward to call these people scientists. They don't call themselves scientists, they call themselves mathematicians, or they call themselves natural philosophers, or they call themselves virtuosi, or they have a whole range of terms for themselves. They're looking around for a term for themselves and have difficulty, um, they come to be called in the early 19th century men of science. Uh, the word scientist has a fundamental obstacle to its invention, which is that it's a combination of a Latin uh, root and a Greek suffix, uh, and, and that's, for most people, unacceptable. To combine Latin and Greek in that way is unacceptable. Uh, so that it, when it, the word scientist is invented, which I think is in the 1860s, uh, the response to it is to say, that's a barbarous word, you shouldn't use this. And it takes a very long time for the word scientist to establish itself, and a lot of people into the 20th century uh, refuse to use it because they say it's a barbarous. As since scientist is a label for something, but the thing it's a label for exists long before the word scientist does, uh, and, and they know who they are and they understand what their enterprise is perfectly clearly. Um, they they just don't have a professional designation, uh, partly because um, there are it takes a while to establish chairs in physics and chemistry in universities and so on. Um, and for a long time, there are still chairs in natural philosophy and there are mathematicians. It takes a long while to establish, institutionalize the new science. But you should distinguish between institutionalizing the new science and the new science actually taking over intellectually, which happens much earlier. The universities are astonishingly, profoundly conservative organizations. It takes a while to catch up. Right. 
Uh, and when oh. did people really start acknowledging that there were some people in Europe or a group of people uh, that were really doing an intellectual activity uh, that was different from what, uh, let's say, well-read people were used to? Um, well, I mean, it's certainly the case with Francis Bacon, that Bacon wants to see that, believes it's possible. Uh, Bacon has rather poor judgment and doesn't understand that it's already been done by people like Galileo. Um, but I think, but you know, uh, Kepler, I think, is perfectly clear of the revolutionary character of the enterprise he's engaged in. Galileo is perfectly clear of the revolutionary enterprise that, uh, uh, that, that he's engaged in. Um, by the time you get to the 1650s, people looking back on what Kepler and Galileo have achieved are quite clear that something profoundly new is, is happening. And you get by the 1670s and 80s all sorts of debates about the ancients versus the debates. Starts out partly as debates about literature is Homer superior to, to modern, uh, to Milton or whatever. But it also very quickly becomes a debate about the new new forms of knowledge and old forms of knowledge. And, and by the end of the 17th century, that debate has effectively been won, and it's accepted that new knowledge has supplanted old knowledge. And, and, the, and the victory in that debate is a recognition that the new science is different in character from the old philosophy, any of the old philosophy. Mm -hmm. So one of the first problems that scientists tackled uh, had to do with the place of the Earth in the universe and also how the solar system was organized or structured, basically. So one of the first scientific enterprises was the one of astronomy. Uh, from what point uh, did people in general really replace the old notion that they had about uh, an Earth at the center of the universe and the other planets and stars uh, circulating around it uh, for, for the new uh, idea of uh, an heliocentric universe or solar system. Did it, take, did it take long for that to happen? It takes a century or more for that to happen um, because the Galileo almost overnight kills off the Ptolemaic system. The discovery of the phases of Venus is incompatible with Ptolemy. Uh, so from the 1612 on, uh, Ptolemy is dead. Uh, and Galileo thought that this should lead straightforwardly to the triumph of Copernicanism. But it didn't, because there's a perfectly satisfactory alternative system for uh, explaining uh, the structure of, the, of, of what we now call the solar system, the structure of the cosmos. A system of Tycho Brahe. And the system of Tycho Brahe, which the Catholic Church latches onto because it leaves the Earth stationary at the center of the universe and it leaves Aristotelian physics intact, the system of Tycho Brahe remains for astronomers a viable system up into the 1660s and 1670s at least. So there's, there's, there's no simple triumph for Copernicanism. What causes the ultimate triumph of Copernicanism is, is, is Newton. Once Newton comes along and people accept that Newton's right, Aristotelian physics dies with it. The church sees that it can no longer defend the Tychonic system. And even the Catholic Church institutionally comes around after 1710, 1715 to acknowledge 
that the Tychonic system has to be abandoned. Um, and in that sense, uh, the process of, of replacing uh, the Ptolemaic system, uh, the Copernican system, is actually a process in the long run of replacing the Ptolemaic system by the Newtonian system. And it's only complete with Newton. And it involves, in the meantime, uh, from Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler on, uh, a long series of uh, intellectual shifts. And until 1650 or so, the Copernicans are in the minority. It's only the second half of the 17th century that Copernicanism really begins to triumph. Um, and Galileo, for example, his crucial argument in favor of Copernicanism uh, was the claim that the movement of the earth caused the tides, which was incorrect and, and depended on all sorts of unsatisfactory arguments and, and remarkably convinced absolutely no one, I think. I, I've yet to find a case of someone who read Galileo's great discourse on the two great world systems, uh, dialogue on the two great world systems, and, and was convinced by the argument of that book. Uh, and in that sense, our notion that triumphed is just untrue. If anyone triumphed, it was Kepler. Um, but, but even Kepler made sense. Kepler's laws of planetary motion only make sense within a Newtonian system. So the whole process takes from all the way from Copernicus to Newton, and retrospectively, we can construct that as a process of progress and discovery, even though at the time, it certainly doesn't look straightforward at all. Mm -hmm. So earlier you referred to Columbus and how we discovered the Americas, basically, and how that brought a new sense of discovery for people. So uh, one of the first things that people also tried to do was to reconstruct the geography of our planet because really after discovering an entire uh, huge new continent it really changed the perspective that people have about things. So, uh, but in that sense, I would like to ask you uh, what do you think was the importance of the relationship between uh, politics and science uh, for science to move along? Right. I mean, let's just go back and, and think about what Columbus does, because for me, it was an extraordinary revelation. And I don't think anyone had quite seen the importance of, of this. Um, and according to Aristotle, a sphere of Earth ought to lie at the center of the universe, surrounded by a sphere of water. Mm -hmm. On a simple system, there would be no dry land. Dry land would be a standard medieval view. There would be 10 times as much water as dry land, and it would encase the Earth. So natural philosophers had argued that for some unknown reason or for some because of God's intervention, the Earth had been poked out of the water or moved so that it was no longer centered at the center of the universe. So that what you have is the Earth is a sort of apple floating in a sphere of water. And that is the, the, the inhabited world. Consequently, the inhabited world has to be confined within, at an absolute maximum, half of the sphere of the Earth. It cannot extend beyond that. The apple can't rise out of the water beyond a certain point. What Columbus does is discover large amounts of dry land, which are at the opposite end of the Earth. Earth is here as a complicated word, but opposite end of the Earth-water complex, 
what we now call the terraqueous globe, which is the term that's invented in this process. Dry land, which is at the opposite side of the Earth from the known world, the inhabited, the known ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks. That was thought to be impossible. Columbus, when he set out, didn't think he was going to find that. He thought he was going to sail round the Earth, vast ocean, and come around, come around to China. But long before he gets to China, he finds this whole new, what he never recognizes, but uh, uh, Vespucci recognizes as being a new continent. That's impossible. Because it's impossible, it's clear that the whole Aristotelian account of the structure of the Earth is, is false. And within a few decades of Columbus's discovery, every natural philosopher and every geographer has accepted that the Earth isn't constructed the way it had held, been held to be constructed all through the Middle Ages. And this isn't about the... Nobody thinks the Earth is flat. It's not about that. It's about the discovery that within the round globe, there is land to be found almost anywhere and potentially anywhere. Aristotelian cannot be the case. And that demolishes a central claim of Aristotelian philosophy, and therefore it's like knocking a prop under a building, away under a building. From that moment on, the whole building is unstable. And the discovery of this new information creates the possibility of knocking the whole building down. And that's the transformative moment. Now, so you asked about the relationship between this and politics. Um, obviously, Columbus's voyages of discovery are a, a political enterprise. They're an enterprise of, 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 of um, military and political and trading, colonialism and expansion. And, and, and without that enterprise, this particular aspect of the new science wouldn't have been discovered and one would have had to wait for the discovery of the telescope for a fundamental claim of the old sciences to be undermined. Without, without the telescope, you can begin to wonder. I think it's very clear that if European civilization hadn't been very largely based upon glass making, there would have been no scientific revolution. China has an enormously developed technology. Why does that not develop into a scientific revolution? Uh, primarily, I think, because they don't have lenses. They don't have glass vessels. They have porcelain instead. And you can't use... Porcelain is wonderful, much nicer than glass in many ways. But you can't use it in the way you can use glass for constructing things that you can see through and constructing uh, uh, um, things that you can use for measuring in the same way. So in that way... Uh, glass is the fundamental technology without which there couldn't have been a scientific My glass and printing, you know, the makings of a scientific revolution, even I think without Columbus's voyages of discovery. But without those three, without much the discovery, without glass, without printing, we would, we would still be living in a world, I think, of, of, of philosophy, not of science. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, you refer to China, and the case of China is really interesting because uh, until very recently in history, I'm not sure if we could say the 18th century or the 19th century, but China was really a very well advanced civilization, uh, at, yeah. le at least as advanced 
as the European one. And uh, I look back and I remember that even in the 15th century, China had a very well-developed navy fleet and uh, huge vessels to transport people and, uh, and all things like that. So I was wondering if uh, the reason why China wasn't behind the scientific revolution or even behind the discovery of the Americas was some sort of cultural barrier that they had? Well, I think, I think it, 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 it must be. It must be. We, we, we need to think about what it is. I think partly it's a te technological barrier. It's the absence of glass in, in the culture as a fundamental uh, uh, tool. Um, and that's a sort of cultural accident, you might say. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that China was a big unified state. Uh, if you think of gunpowder, for example, that's inherited by Western Europe from China, but Western Europeans turn it into uh, a, a new technology of warfare, partly because they are at war with each other, and therefore they're at war with equally sophisticated arms race of a sort that you don't get in China, I think. So in that sense, part of the answer is that competition drives innovation and competition exists in different ways, uh, economically, militarily, culturally in Western Europe from the way in which it exists in China, I think. So I certainly think that has a great deal to do with it. Um, but I think it's also, uh, you know, the, the printing press is another case. We inherit the technology of the printing press in, in large part from, from China. Uh, it's transformed in Western Europe, and it has a transformative impact in Western Europe, partly because we have an alphabet culture, not a, uh, a, a Chinese uh, a form of writing. Uh, but also, I think, because we don't have the very tightly knit, skilled, uh, ruling elite within the culture and his examination system. We've got a much more open and porous intellectual life in Western Europe from the life in China. I think now I'm, you know, I make these claims. I don't pretend to be an expert on Chinese civilization, but it clearly is a fundamental problem. We any exploration of uh, why Western Europe develops technologically and intellectually scientifically much more rapidly in the 17th, 18th, 19th century than China does has to be, uh, has to in some sense be able to address the question of why China is overtaken um, um, by a, a new type of uh, form of knowledge which then conquers the world. Mm -hmm. It's very crucial that the scientific revolution transforms the relationship between Western Europe and the rest of the world. Um, and, and so, so is it that another hypothesis that you're putting on the table here is that because of the way Europe was politically structured, it was easier for information to flow between people there? Yes, I think that's right. And I mean, one of the reasons, consequences of the way in which Europe is politically structured is it's very much harder to suppress new ideas. Think of Copernicanism. The Catholic Church bans Copernicanism. Galileo's publications are banned, but immediately they're reprinted in Protestant Holland, and immediately they start circulating elsewhere. So in that sense, the, 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 the 
political and religious division of Europe make it much harder for a common culture to impose itself. There is something resembling a common culture at the, you know, as late as the uh, end of the 15th century. But as you go into the 16th century, that common culture breaks down in religious terms. Um, and, and, and soon after that, that opens the space for it to break down in intellectual terms. Um, so I think it, it is very important that censorship doesn't work. That's, that we, 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 I think we have a tendency to think, well, that, that's censorship is bound to fail. Censorship isn't bound to fail. Censorship often works very well. But in Western Europe, fortunately for us, the power of the censor diminished from the 16th century onwards. And, and, and that opened up space for all sorts of important things. Science is one of them. Religious dissent and atheism are, are, are other aspects of this and, and in the long run all sorts of other things. So uh, it is very important that there that effectual censorship ceased to exist with the Protestant Reformation. Um, shine invented gunpowder and I think this is important because this leads <coughs> us to another uh, discussion here that is uh, earlier in the interview you referred to the fact that with science people started uh, mathematizing if we could say that the world uh, and uh, one very important development there was the one of geometry and in your book you refer to the fact that for example people uh, politicians mainly needed to create new fortifications that were able to resist cannonballs due to the invention of gunpowder. So uh, could you tell us about that, how perhaps the relationship between the development of science and technology went along? Uh, yes, I mean, I think we need, first of all, to think of the world as a discovery, which depend upon navigation, and navigation uh, out of sight of land depends upon uh, various sorts of tools for, for working out where you where you are. But take the case of Galileo. How does Galileo try and make money? He's a relatively poorly paid professor at the University of, of Padua. What he does is he takes in living in guests to whom he teaches um, the mathematics of the new military world. He teaches them how to design fortifications. He teaches them how to measure elevations. He designs a whole new thing called the military uh, compass. Uh, compass is a misleading term here, but it's a measuring and calculating device, uh, which he sells them and makes a profit on selling them. And he sells them a little manual that, that enables them to use it. And, and so what Galileo is in the business of doing is training a gentleman young aristocrats who will go off and fight wars. Um, and he produces uh, elaborate instructions for this. This is the most basic uh, employment prospect for someone with mathematical skills, navigation, military affairs, surveying, uh, planning of uh, uh, hydraulic works and so on. And that, that's the location within which you find a whole lot of expert, skilled people who can understand and participate in the new science. So it's, a, it's a, again, a feedback mechanism. The new uh, navigation, uh, the new um, um, military activities create a new technical class, and the new technical class then creates new scientific knowledge, uh, which 
they take pride in and which represents the full use of their skills. Um, and, and so it's entirely out of that world, you know, what's Newton, professor of mathematics, it's entirely out of the, the world of mathematical knowledge that the new science emerges. Um, you know, the changes that take place in biology are not nearly as threatening to an Aristotelian or a Galenic understanding of the world until the 19th century as the change in physics. And in that sense, you know, Harvey's circulation of the blood. Harvey's an Aristotelian in most of his ways of thinking. Um, Harvey's circulation of the blood can be reworked within a traditional understanding of the working of the body. It doesn't require a, a major transformation of um, medical therapeutics and so on. It, there is no, there's also some new knowledge in biology, but the new paradigms in biology don't have this extraordinary explosive destructive power that the new paradigms in astronomy and physics have of destroying the inherited knowledge from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. So there was the development of the telescope, but on the other hand, we also developed back then the microscope or the first rudimentary microscope, let's say. So th there was also this revolution in terms of how people established a connection between the very small and the very little, right? Yes. The very small and the very big, sorry. <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, the microscope is really interesting because the micro Galileo makes a microscope. Once you've got a telescope, you've got a microscope. It's, the two things are basically the same thing. Galileo makes a microscope, and and and, and uh, they're used, and and uh, people study flies with them, and fly the how do flies uh, what makes it possible for a fly to walk upside down and things like that. They're all studying that, but the microscope is uh, a toy, a plaything, and until you get to Leeuwenhoek, um, and one reason for this is. Precisely because Aristotle didn't have a microscope, Aristotle had made no claims about what the world of the very little would be like. And so discoveries about the world of the very little were, as it were, uh, entirely uh, entertaining because they didn't transform knowledge. They were, in some sense, minor additions, but they didn't have capacity. It's not until uh, the 19th century that the microscope has to be transformed. So... And even after leaving this period of 40 years when microscopes are national and large, and then through the 18th century, the microscope goes entirely out of favor again. While the telescope, once it's entrenched itself, remains widely used, partly, of course, because you can use them in navigation and you can use them in military affairs, but also because they create a, a rapidly accumulating body of new astronomical knowledge, which leads to further and further inquiry in a way that the microscope just doesn't until the 19th century. So we've got the same technology here, and in one world, the world of astronomy, it has a revolutionary consequence, and in another world, the world of biology, it has very few consequences at all for a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. Right. So let me just ask you maybe a last question. Uh, what do you think uh, was the importance of the development of capitalism to the progress of science? Now, here you've, you've touched on a question that I address in my more, more recent book, um, Power, Pleasure and Profit, um, because clearly there are a set of arguments which want to say that um, the scientific revolution uh, partly 
uh, and then uh, the emergence of political economy and economic, modern economic theories are both the result of capitalist transformation. Um, and I don't think that either of them is the result of capitalist transformation. Um, in the case of political economy, I'm not at all persuaded that anything had been, you know, capitalism has existed for a long time. In the 13th century, St. Francis is struggling with the urban capitalist enterprise. If you look at the world of Machiavelli in 16th century Florence, it's a profoundly capitalist world. It's a world of big money and big investment of banks and, and commerce. Uh, there are important shifts and changes like the invention of stock exchanges and of uh, limited companies and so on. <clears throat> But what really makes possible, I would argue, the emergence of political economy is actually Newtonianism, which enables you to understand social activities as complicated interactive systems which feed back on each other in a way, once you've got a model from nature of that happening. So I actually think political economy requires Newton. And what does Newton require? Newton requires the scientific revolution. What does the scientific revolution require? Uh, it requires the printing press. Uh, it requires uh, gunpowder. It requires uh, lenses. And it requires more than they had in the 13th century. Um, they had, you know, in that sense, capitalism develops and accumulates in various ways. That's its character. But I don't think it, there's a transformative process which means that science and political economy are somehow superstructures based upon some new base. To use classical Marxist language, what they are is the result of new conceptual tools and new technologies which hadn't existed before. But selling, manufacturing, making things for profit and accumulating wealth have existed. You know? uh, once, you get, once you're dealing with non-slave economies and non-surf economies, then you have market economies. And these market economies are capitalist economies. I do think that slavery and serfdom are, create radically different cultures. Well, I, I'm really sorry, Dr. Wooden, but I've lost you there for the last few <coughs> seconds. Uh, could you go back uh, and tell us again about the difference between societies that are stru structured on slavery and serfdom and sure. the ones that are based on market on the market economy? Well, I, th I think if you if you if you take societies that are based upon upon slavery or, or, or any form of forced labor. Don't have a, you don't work out the cost of things. Uh, you you impose labor upon people, and in a sense, the labor is free. You may have to go and conquer people to get new slaves or whatever, but this is not a measurable cost. It's only when you work into move into a capitalistic, a, a market society, a commercial society, in which labor itself <clears throat> is a commercial object which is sold that you can do rational calculations about costs and therefore that you can think straightforwardly about profit and loss. And so it's the emergence of double entry bookkeeping, which represents the extraordinary conceptual transformation of saying we can work out what the cost of things is. And this is from the 13th century. We can work out what the cost of things is. We can work out what the profits are. We can rationally calculate how our investments are turning out 
and, and, and see whether we're doing better. Double entry bookkeeping is the mark of a commercial society and it transforms in many ways uh, people's ways of thinking because it leads to an instrumental and rationalist way of thinking but it's confined within certain sorts of economic activity um, until the 17th, 18th century when that form of instrumental thinking is allowed to expand out of narrow business practices by the recognition that uh, you can understand the whole natural and social world as mathematically interacting systems, which means you can then take double entry bookkeeping, which is a mathematical process of naturalizing uh, you know, bags of sugar and bales of cotton and turning them into numbers, you can say you can do this for the whole of society and for the whole of nature. And interact and flow together. And, and that means mathematics becomes something that you can take out of business and out of geometry and out of the area of perspective painting where it had been employed and use it now to understand the whole interactions that constitute nature and society. And, and, and mathematics then becomes the, the model for all rational understanding. Uh, and every intellectual enterprise sets out to be instrumental and calculating in a quite new way, in a way that's impossible to imagine uh, before the scientific revolution. Mm -hmm. Okay, so perhaps the relationship is the other way around, and it was not really capitalism that influenced the progress of science, but really science that gave us the tools for us to develop uh, more advanced market economies. Is that it? Yes. If you make a, I think this is sort of false choice. But if you press me and say you must make a choice, I would make that choice. I would say Adam Smith is impossible without Newton. Uh, Adam Smith writes a history of astronomy. You can see the powerful way in which understanding astronomy shapes Adam Smith's understanding of how intellectual life should be conducted. Once you've got Adam Smith. That creates a tremendous pressure to open up markets, to replace uh, guilds and non-competitive arrangements by uh, free competition. And that fosters the expansion of capitalism. So in that sense, I would say uh, Smith does more to make capitalism take off than the takeoff of capitalism makes Smith possible. Yes, I would, I would, I would turn it around. And if that's a somewhat idealist argument, well, that's tough. I think it's... I think it works better. Mm -hmm. okay. And the striking thing here is that, uh, you know, a lot of these arguments can't go back to well before uh, the sort of uh, uh, major takeoff of capitalist enterprise that you need to use capitalism as the explanation. The intellectual revolution comes first, and then uh, the economic revolution follows on to it, and the industrial, the technological revolution follows on behind it. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. So, Dr. Wooden, I will be leaving links to your work and particularly to your books in the description box of the interview. Would you like to refer to any place on the internet where people can follow your work? I have a website which is davidwooden.com. So, if they go there, they'll find also links to my books and, and uh, reviews of my books and so forth. So, that's the place they should go. 
Okay, so uh, Dr. Wooden, thank you again a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure talking to you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Hi there, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, I also have a PayPal and Subscribestar. And if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condreano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, and Ruth Gervoz, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.